Blog Talk Radio. Kobe Bryant was a teenager when he walked onto the NBA stage, and there was no doubt in his mind that he was ready. I'm going to go in there, and I'm going to work hard every day. I'm young, but I'm not going to back down from anyone. He had the drive, the ability to thrill, all wrapped in a megawatt smile. Welcome to the Kobe Show. And fans began to see that they were in for something special. Here comes Bryant. Oh, He would pair with Shaquille O'Neal to form a powerful one-two punch, elevating his game when it counted most. Kobe, jump shot, believe, yes! The phenom had grown into a three-time NBA champ. Three, that's three. Back, two back, two back. Kobe was anything but a finished product. In the years that followed, he reached a new level of mental and physical dominance. And an 81-point game. The Mamba was born. I couldn't even dream of this when I was a kid. You know, there's no way possible. You know, just a blessing from above. And his scoring explosions captivated the league. Four straight games, 50 or more points. All the while, Kobe realized there was still room to grow. Kobe Bryant, the 2007-2008 most valuable player. And the true greatness means lifting those around him. He embraced his role as a leader, and the result was a return to glory for the Los Angeles Lakers. Basketball immortality for the 09 Los Angeles Lakers. Kobe's ability to inspire wasn't limited to his body of work in the NBA. They call me the OG. You know what I mean? So it's fun for me to be around these guys and kind of mentor them a little bit. He was a driving force behind the 2008 Olympic team that restored USA basketball to the top of the podium and won gold again in 2012. Team USA has won back-to-back gold medals. Beloved by fans around the world, Kobe Bryant had transcended the game. He embodied excellence, achievement, and aspiration for millions of fans everywhere. And when it came time to write the final chapter of his NBA career, Kobe saved one of his most unforgettable performances for last. Kobe Bryant, on the final night of his NBA career, scored 60 points. 6-0. Man! To spend 20 years here, you can't write something better than this. With his playing days behind him, he understood that all along, his single-minded pursuit of excellence was about much more than himself. The most important thing is how your career moves and touches those around you, and how it carries forward to the next generation. Welcome in tonight, ladies and gentlemen. This is AJC Radio, and 
tonight, uh, since we were not on the air uh, last week, we didn't get an opportunity to bid farewell to Kobe Bryant, his daughter Gianna, and all nine passengers on that helicopter helicopter crash, which happened at 9.06 a.m. Pacific Standard Time on January 26th. Gianna, known as GD's, uh, Gigi, uh, 13 years old, perished with her father. Also, Elisa Adabelli and Peyton Chester, the friends, parents, Carrie and John Adabelli, uh, and Sarah Chester, as well as basketball coach Christina Mosser and pilot Arizobian departed from John Wayne Airport on that memorable morning, uh, and things went bad very quickly Uh, our prayers and our thoughts go out to the Bryant family to Vanessa to the children uh, to the parents and uh, without a doubt all the fans uh, of basketball who followed the career of Kobe Bryant uh, a very very tragic loss um, without question suddenly taken so quickly Simpson yeah absolutely Uh, I was actually listening to an interview about uh that Kobe has said about that it, it was his absolute dream from the time he was a kid to, I mean, he grew up being an LA Lakers fan. He wanted to play for the LA Lakers his entire life. And I mean, he was truly wrapped up uh, in the game um, that he loves so dearly. I mean, he started doing it straight out of high school, I believe. And he just, you could tell his adoration for the game, his, his spirit that he put into it, not only, um, on the court when he played, but also like off the court, talking to his teammates, encouraging them, and actually being a uh, a leader and showing a, a mentality of determination when he got it on the court. Um, he's definitely going to be missed, um, and definitely wish his family the best and offer him all of our uh, our thoughts and prayers. Yeah, we. Yeah, it was uh, definitely tra- tragic. He he brought so much to the game. You know, his character. He was uh, he was constantly known for his work ethic. They said be it in the gym, uh, there with his teammates, or even at midnight just putting up shots in the gym by himself. He was constantly looking to better himself, become a better player, take the game to the next level. And uh, and, and his daughter saw that and, and was willing to pick up the mantle from her father. And that was their, their closeness and the bond that they had. And many people remember uh, a couple months or maybe a month prior, you know, the photo of them sitting side by side at the Lakers game. Um, her interest actually sparked him to, to come back, you know, and, and uh, be more visual at the game and, and participate more. So he had that relationship, and, they, and, and everybody understands following. Uh, they had a very special bond through basketball. She wanted to go play at UConn, and right. uh, they retired her number. And it was tragic, you know, just the loss and the loss of life. So it's definitely sad. And uh, even today, you know, weeks later, people are still remembering in their, in their stories about – um, how he impacted the game, how he impacted different players, his teammates, friends, and uh, his overall impact to the game. Oh, for sure. Can... I just think it was uh, – I remember when I first heard it, it was just very sad. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was there's, – there's nothing you can really uh, add to that. It was very sad. I just I, – what I do appreciate is that people are remembering Kobe Bryant for who – and for who he was and the good things he did and the accomplishments he did is that he was able to have a legacy when he left that when he left this world that there were so many people that that admired and could look up to the things that he accomplished and did and to me I also uh, am just I just can't imagine what the mother feels like 
losing your daughter and your sisters feel like that you lost not only your husband on one day, but your daughter also. Yeah. It was just it was just too early. Oh, and right. and it's and, and this is just a true word of tragedy. That's what this was. It really was, and uh, we'd be less than uh, what we need to be as, as human beings to not take a moment on this show uh, to remember Kobe Bryant uh, and the tragedy and to pray again. And our thoughts and prayers go out to Vanessa, to the children who lost a father, uh, Vanessa losing her husband of 30, I believe it's over 30 years. Um, that's tough. So we wanted to take a few moments to, before we start this show tonight. We, we found it fitting uh, to remember Kobe Bryant, uh, Gigi, uh, 13 years of age. Um, all we can do is, is, again, remember the families and keep them in our thoughts and prayers as this, uh, the, the, the road and, the, and the, the, the dark road really ahead of trying to cope and to digest. Um, and to wrap your hands around that, that, that your husband, Kobe Bryant, yeah, he was a celebrity. He was a well-known person, but this was your husband. This was your, uh, and the father to children and things, things like that. Those are always very difficult things to go through. And again, our hearts go out to them and to that family. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. The criminal justice system has a set of rights created to protect us. But do you think it's really protecting us? You had a right to remain silent, but that really means you had a right to be silent, doubted, interrogated, suspected. The color of your skin can and will be used against you in the court of law. In their hands, we're incarcerated five times more often than white people convicted for the same crimes. You have a right to attorney during questioning. In some states, 80% 80% of criminal defendants can't even afford an attorney. So an overworked public defender controls your fate. One government employee, countless lives at stake. You had a right to be innocent until proven guilty. But somehow, about 47% of the wrongly convicted are black. And if they do prove you're guilty, they're going to write you a run-on sentence. On average, 20% longer than white defendants accused of the same crime. Even if you get out, you're still not free. When you're an ex-kind, they had a right to deny you a bank account, deny you a mortgage, deny you a job, deny your vote. And if you don't remain perfect with the smallest slip-up, smallest infraction, the most honest mistake, you're going to join us, the 80% who come back to prison within five years, as I did. That's when you realize They didn't bring us here to thrive. They brought us here to build this. The plantation and the prison are actually no different. The past is the present. It ain't no coincidence. This was the plan since abolition, to keep us subjugated by creating this system. But I believe in a different set of rights. The right to stand up and be heard. The right to perform a broken justice system and build a new future. We had the right to be silent. Now it's our right to speak up. Do you understand these rights as I read them to you? We have a big problem, and we need your help. It's happening on college campuses, at bars, at parties, even in high schools. It's happening to our sisters and our daughters. Our wives and our friends. 
called sexual assault, and it has to stop. We have to stop it. So listen up. If she doesn't consent, or if she can't consent, it's rape, it's assault. It's a crime. It's wrong. If I saw it happening and I was taught, you have to do something about it. If I saw it happening, I'd speak up. If I saw it happening, I'd never blame her. I'd help her. Because I don't want to be a part of the problem. I want to be a part of the solution. We need all of you to be part of the solution. This is about respect. It's about responsibility. It's up to all of us to put an end to sexual assault. And that starts with you. Because one is too many. I'm a mother. I'm a father. I'm a sister. A registered nurse. I serve my country in the United States military. I'm your neighbor. I sit next to you at church. And my child was arrested, held in custody, questioned without my knowledge, exposed to violence, witnessed to rape, placed in solitary confinement, unable to call or see me, shackled to a wall, beaten, sentenced as an adult at age 17, Sentenced as an adult at age 16. Sentenced as an adult at age 15. We felt lost. Isolated. Ostracized. Misjudged. Terrified. And in the absence of all hope, my child took his own life. And then I found the Alliance for Youth Justice. They gave me the support and resources to get through one of the most difficult times in my life. Now I know I'm not alone. And neither are you. Now we have a voice. Now we, we have, have power. power. In numbers. In numbers. In numbers. We, we can, can make a difference. There are approximately 2 million children in the juvenile and criminal justice system in this country. These are the faces of those families. If you are the family member of a child who has been in the justice system, or if you are someone who supports this movement and is ready to make a difference, visit the Campaign for Youth Justice at www.campaignforyouthjustice.org. Do you know anyone who's been sent to prison who's innocent? The United States is experiencing record numbers of exonerations in cases where people were wrongfully convicted of crimes they did not commit. If you believe that no one should be sent to prison for crimes they didn't commit, there is something that you can do today. By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause at 855-529-4252 or visit a-justcause.com and click the donate button. A just cause is a 501c3. Wrongful convictions are wrong. Let's be the voice of those who can't speak from behind the wall. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen of America. This is AJC Radio, and we are back here to discuss the situation with the FBI, part of a series here on AJC Radio that we need to get into and have a conversation about, uh, and tonight we're going to actually do that. Uh, I'm Lamont Banks, along with Kendrick Barnes, Samson Riddle, William Williams, and Cliff Stewart, the entire AJC Radio team tonight. Dennis is out. Uh, but uh, this, these are things that are critically important that we discuss. Um, and as we got into conversation a couple of weeks ago on the abuse of the FBI, let me be very clear when I say this, that this is, 
uh, a situation that we feel we have an obligation to inform the American people uh, of the practices of not all, but some FBI uh, uh, agents, representatives. We want to be very clear with this next statement. The FBI has a lot of heroes, a lot of people that lay their lives on the, their lives on the line every single day. In, in no way do we put everybody in one bunch or one group to say these people are all bad. Absolutely not. I've heard heroic stories through the years of FBI agents that actually really sacrificed their lives uh, for the betterment, and they take very seriously the oath in which they took to protect, to serve, and to protect. So let's be clear on that. We have a lot of great people out there. We, in no way do we want to ever give the impression, in spite of our passion, of what we're talking about in regards to those that are not doing it so right. And where the uh, abuse of power does lie, uh, that's in every organization across the board. You're going to find people that are just uh, doing it wrong. But we don't want to ever take away from the people that are doing it right. And our hats, uh, William, go off to the men and women who get up every morning and put that badge on for the FBI, and they do a tremendous job. We want to make sure that is clear. That's that's true because, I mean, you know, we actually – those those men and women that are that took the oath are protecting us. You know, they're, they're doing the investigations into – into terrorism organizations and, and and cells and units that are here that are trying to bring about the next 9/11. There's there's right. those that are out here that are really they're devoted. They're they've inserted themselves into um, into undercover work and all these things and and they don't know if they're going to get to go home. So you we definitely have to understand that the majority of these people, the majority of these men and women are serving the best interests and to the safety of those that don't even know. You know, we don't even know. We don't even know. We live under the blanket of freedom that they've provided and the protection that they've provided for us as the as a senior law enforcement agency in our country. So, you know, these are, but there are those, like you're saying, there are, there are those situations and circumstances, those that have abused their power, and and we need to understand that. We need to really understand and shine light that, you know, there's there's two different sides of the FBI. Most of them are good, but there are those those bad apples. And we're obligated. We're right. obligated as advocates to speak to all issues. And but we, we're going to make it very clear. Uh, I, I know when we had some issues with the law enforcement across the country, uh, people were, you know, the two officers that were killed in New York because of people that were being killed by police. Uh, these were acts of retaliation, uh, but in no way. Uh, those officers eating their lunch in their patrol car uh, did not have to die. That's right. uh, and that, so please understand our position tonight. But we are going to be addressing uh, the abuse of power within the Federal Bureau of Investigations for those that choose to walk that line and to abuse that power. We will address those issues tonight, uh, but we make that disclaimer very clear. Uh, we salute, and our thoughts and our prayers are always with those that protect this country uh, from harm's way. So uh, let's be clear on that. Um, as we got into conversation a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about the IRP-5, uh, the case that went on with that, uh, Kendrick, and, and the situation of things. And, William, even you uh, being uh, obstructed to, to serve a subpoena ordered by the court right. uh, to appear. Um, and we believe that these things contributed without question to the wrongful conviction of the IRP-5. It's just it is what it is. Um, and. There is a double standard in this country 
when it comes to law enforcement, the FBI, uh, if I obstruct anyone from doing what to carry out an order of a court or a judge, which is if it's come from the court, it's from a judge, I would be immediately arrested and locked up. But in this case, as we talked before, William, uh, you it was obstruction period of a court order. Right. Uh, and was done, and it was an FBI agent That's right. that interfered with the serving of that subpoena. Uh, those are things that we are talking about on this show tonight. Why is the double standard? Why was it so vividly important that interference during this case was done not only from the uh, office uh, uh, of the uh, – uh, U.S. Attorney's Office in Denver, but also the FBI. And the collaboration of the two. The collaboration of these entities coming together, doing what they did, which also included, as we talked about last week, uh, the going into church accounts. By the, This is a collective effort of the most powerful entities in the United States government, which is the FBI, the U.S. Attorney's Office, and the IRS. That is a big big deal. And when you're talking about that, uh, you understand why it is important as advocates in an advocacy organization, why we must alert the American people, what their rights are, that the FBI, again, not all, but those that choose to abuse the badge, you have to protect yourself and know your rights. That's critically important. Seven. Now, when you're talking about it, you know, and just bringing up those three large government entities, the collusion, the collaboration we're talking about that goes on to, to not only go after these, you know, these professional IT men, but to go after, you know, a church, a pastor and everything else. So, I mean, to, to go after their bank accounts, I mean, what, what business and what, more importantly, what correlation to the case does it have to do anything with, the, with a, a church's finances? You know, but then, you know, like you said, people need to know what their rights are. They need to know that they can tell the FBI no. That's right. They can tell the FBI, I'm not going to talk to you without an attorney. You can shut the door in their face and they have to leave. There are certain things that you have that people need to be informed about. People need to be educated because the fact of the matter is is a lot of us are brought, most of us are brought up in society. Hey, you, you know, you cooperate with law enforcement, you know, you do what you're supposed to do. Everything's going to turn out fine. But the fact of the matter is, is the, the parishioners of Colorado Springs Fellowship Church, we know differently. We know differently because the fact of the matter is, is they cooperated. These men cooperated. Everybody in this situation about this case, they all cooperated. And still, these men were wrongfully convicted, wrongfully imprisoned. And there was a whole bunch of just wrongdoing from the judge to the DA well, to everybody that, you know, Results in these men being in prison. Well, these, this, this falls under basically acts of intimidation. Uh, people don't really talk about that. When you say the FBI, people are generally scared. If the FBI knocks on your door, the people are generally uneasy. Uh, listen to this. A black activist jailed for his Facebook post speaks out about secret FBI surveillance. And it says Rakeem Bolagun on, on being secretly wa- is, is being secretly watched by the FBI. It's tyranny at, at its finest. Photograph Allison B. Smith, the guardian Rakeem Bolagon thought he was dreaming when armed agents in tactical gear stormed his apartment, startled awake by a large crash and officers screaming commands. He soon realized his nightmare was real, and he and his 
15-year-old son were forced outside of their Dallas home wearing only underwear. Handcuffed and shaking in the cold wind, Bulligan thought a misunderstanding must have led the FBI to his door on December 12, 2017. The father of three said he was shocked to later learn that agents investigating domestic terrorism had been monitoring him for years and were arresting him that day in part because of his Facebook post criticizing police. It's tyranny at its finest, says Bogan, 34. I have not been doing anything illegal for them to have surveillance on me. I have not hurt anyone or threatened anyone, Bogan spoke to The Guardian this week in his first interview since he was released from prison after five months locked up and denied bail while U.S. attorneys tried and failed to prosecute him, accusing him of being a threat to law enforcement and an illegal gun owner. Do you believe that? So you got this guy, these, again, these are the things that where people raise those questions. How does the FBI storm your house? And ultimately, the U.S. Attorney's Office couldn't even charge him with the crime. But he's standing outside in his underwear with his 15-year-old son and arrested and handcuffed. How do you do that? How do you do that? This, these are the things we talk about. And they said because he criticized or spoke out about law enforcement, how does the domestic terrorism unit end up at my house and said he'd been watched for years? It's, it's basically sending the message to him that we want you to be quiet. And that's, and that's the that's sad illegal. part. Yeah, it's illegal. Because here's the thing about FBI. It's one of the few jobs where you literally have the title of the good guys. I mean, you hear it all the time. We're the good guys. Your job is to protect my rights as a citizen, to make sure your, your main goal is to make sure that the laws are followed so that everyone has, a, you know, has their rights respected. But if a man exercising his First Amendment right is intimidated into basically, I mean, I mean, this is a, this is near like shock trooper type, you know, uh, uh, analogy. If you storm his house, basically, even if you didn't have anything to to charge him with, but to send a message, hey, you need to be quiet. That's just wrong. That's illegal, and it's just wrong. But it sends a message to again when we go back to the RP five case. Uh, to what extent, and Cliff, maybe you can speak to this. Uh, when even the FBI went as far as to hold, I forget the name they call it, uh, equipment or information uh, that they would not release. The, the, the term leaves me right now, but we tried to uh, get those things back. It's a legal thing within the, in, the, in Congress. Is everything they seized uh, from the search warrant? Right, but it's something it's, I, I can't I, – I my mind throws a, throws a blank clip. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's the computer information uh, that they the have. Intellectual property. Intellectual property. There we go. Uh, and we, they, we actually had to fight to get them to, to come to the law. That's the law. And they withheld that intellectual property. And when, right? you, when you look at the things that the FBI confiscated from IRP Solutions, um, they came in – saying they're looking for financial records between IRP Solutions and these staffing companies that were used. Well, that just uh, makes no sense because you could have got all those records from the actual staffing companies that IRP Solutions is doing business with. 
but they came in, imaged all the computers, all the way down to the janitor's computer, to the receptionist, everything. They took the intellectual property that took that they had no business seizing were uh, developer notes, um, analyst notes, things that are that, you know, when you come up with the concept of the idea of the software that you're producing, these are the things that they took out of the building and took what from from 2005 until I believe 2016 or 17, they took that long to return the intellectual property and had to be fought. These are the things that when you look at the FBI and you look at the prosecutor in this situation, uh, Assistant U.S. Attorney Matthew Kirsch, why are you fighting a company to keep their intellectual property when the case has been tried? The, uh, you know, the, the, the men have been um, wrongfully convicted. They've been given their sentence down. They're in prison, and you're still fighting to hold on to the things that you never had business touching in the first place. Just, those, those are the type of things that just throw you for a loop that you say, well, what is the reason? You have to, when you even use logic to try to figure it out, you have to say there's corruption there. And, and you also have to take into point, if you take, you're assuming that if you're taking something via a search warrant, that this evidence is going to at some point help the case with the FBI and be presented in court. None of that was presented in court. I mean, exactly. it, they, they, took, they took all this information off computers, took whiteboards off walls with, with uh, intellectual property written on it where, where meetings were happening and uh, discussion of you know, architecture and whatnot. You take it. None of it gets shown to evidence to the jury. None of it is presented in trial. Then they wouldn't even let uh, us as the defendants bring in a lot of information because they, they put it on the blanket of irrelevant. So then why did you take it? And then why won't you give it back? Well, and those are the questions that we raised tonight, that what was the motive here? Was it to get information, uh, Cliff, perhaps on the software that was developed? Was it a search for that information in, in order to sell to the highest? I don't know. Was there a smoking gun that they thought was there in regards to the software that they thought we have, we're going to keep this information, but we walk and step right over the law? When it comes to intellectual property, we were on Capitol Hill. We met with members of Congress who talked about intellectual property. Hakeem Jeffries, I believe, was one that was one that was part of making sure that this was something that they could not do. He, he actually worked in that area as far as seeing that people were not abusing the, uh, the fact of taking intellectual property. Uh, and that's actually law, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it is. I mean, when you if you see an intellectual property for an investigation, once you deal with that intellectual property and you have the information that you're going to use, you know, the Ken's point that you're going to use for evidence for the trial, you return that just like with any other evidence. You're supposed to return that. But they used none of it, but fought and fought and fought to hold on to it for years. And they're still... Um, you know, pieces of hardware, there's still uh, literature and things of that nature that they still have not returned uh, to IRP Solutions. You have to ask, why won't you give the property back? What, what are you holding on to it for? What possible reason, what motive could, can you have for holding on to that property? The case is over. 
and Cliff, if I'm not mistaken, uh, didn't the uh, counsel for the FBI when we met in there told us if they took one thing outside, outside of the scope of that search right. warrant. He said the entire search warrant becomes illegal because they broke the law when they collected property. But with that being said, you have to have a prosecutor and a judge that is willing to uphold the law, to uphold the law and concede to that point that, yes, the FBI collected uh, data that is that there is absolutely no reason they need it. But when the prosecutor, after illegally going into the bank accounts of Colorado Springs Fellowship, after illegally going into the bank accounts of the pastor of Colorado Springs Fellowship, several parishioners, illegally, no search warrant, no subpoena, nothing, why then would we believe that this same prosecutor is going to uphold the law when it comes to the FBI having taken things uh, outside the law? And then the judge, Judge Christine Arguello, does not uphold the law when it's brought to her, her attention. So you have the entire system right. is a trickle-down effect on, uh, of abuse and corruption. At the end of the day, you end up with innocent citizens locked up in prison for no good law enforcement reason because uh, all the way from the FBI agent to the prosecutor to the judge failed at, uh, at meeting the conditions of their job. And, and what's troubling with that, you would think someone would step up. Uh, the director of the FBI at that time, uh, Cliff, was that Mueller? Yes. So he was the director of the FBI. If I'm not mistaken, a letter was sent to Director Mueller uh, in regards to explain that no crime had been committed here. Is that correct? By the RP Solutions. Right. That the, the letter was sent to him explaining there is no crime, that we had a uh, uh, basically a, a letter from Andrew Alberelli, who is the uh, uh, you know owner of a staffing company, who said, "Hey, what IRP Solutions uh, is doing, that is staffing industry norms." Not only was that information sent to Director Miller, but also the fact that hey, the FBI came in, their search warrant was full of holes. They collected things that they had no business collecting. I mean, this this uh, wow. point in complaint was made to Miller in no uncertain terms. What does he do? He sends the complaint back to Denver. How do you – that is the epitome of sending the fox into the hen house. I have a complaint against you in Denver. I go to your higher-up and say, I have a complaint. The people that you have here are doing things illegally. Uh, they are misusing the law and prosecuting me. Um, you know, Basically, there's prosecutorial misconduct. There's misconduct by the FBI. And you say, okay, you're going to send me back to the people that I'm complaining about? How do you think that citizens are going to get any relief if that becomes the norm on uh, this is how you deal with a problem when somebody makes a complaint against the FBI? Well, the problem is if it's – and again, as I said earlier, uh, I am – I do believe that you have good agents within the FBI. You have good leadership oh, yeah, no doubt. Uh, within the FBI. But in this case, uh, Director Mueller, there are questionable things that have been done here. Uh, on the other side of the break, we're going to be dealing with uh, – Some of the things that the director of the FBI, Director Mueller, uh, that uh, did some things, questionable things, that Congressman Gohmert began to call out. We're going to address that. We're going to hear from Congressman Gohmert, his interview about as we we try our best to unravel the bad side of the FBI. We have a good side, but it's our job to highlight the bad tonight. 
as we try to dig our way through the corruption within the FBI and the secrecy that's done and steps that are taken to keep the American people blind to what's going on. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. Diversity is a huge part of our society. We need it. It's instrumental. Invaluable. If you leave out certain people, you then in turn really limit creativity and society's ability to solve problems. That's what we can do in the next four years. Our world is not singular. There are so many voices and experiences that deserve to be heard and expressed. Diversity is really the key to life. Without diversity, life becomes stagnant. It acknowledges and values the importance of everyone, which makes us as a country even better. Martin Luther King, he had a dream. It was for everybody to be united. To stand up for freedom together. Without diversity, there's no progress. And that's what black history is. Black history. More than a month. Do you have a big brother? Well, I have a big brother, and I'm pretty sure that you and I experienced some of the same things with a big brother. Big brothers will always be big brothers, right? I'm sure you'll agree. Well, my brother gets up in the morning. He takes a shower, heads to work, and at some point during the day, he's going to exercise and get that workout, as we all do. And, of course, depending on what's going on, he's going to sit down for two or three meals during the course of his day. And also, depending on what else is going on, he'll probably get caught up on current events and maybe take a few moments to turn a page in a book. How about your big brother? Some of the same stuff, right? Oh, did I mention that my big brother does all of that stuff, but he actually has to have permission a lot of times before he can do it. You see, my big brother was wrongfully convicted of a crime that he did not commit. That's right. That may sound shocking, huh? He's in prison. Wrongful convictions impact families in ways you cannot begin to imagine. But I've decided that I'm going to do something about it. And I extend an invitation to you to come on board and join me in this fight. You see, I'm helping to be a voice for my big brother and others who have been wrongfully convicted. We'd like you to take a few moments today and call a just cause where we fight for justice. You can call us toll-free at 1-855-529-4252. That's 1-855-529-4252. Join with us as we fight for justice and for all big brothers across the land. Odds of becoming an astronaut, 1 in 13,200,000. Odds of being struck by lightning, 1 in 576,000. Odds of dating a supermodel, 1 in 88,000. Odds of bowling a perfect game, 1 in 11,500. Odds of being trapped in an elevator, 1 in 24,528. Odds of catching a ball at a major league game, 1 in 563. Odds of an injury from shaving, 1 in 6,585. Odds of tripping while texting, 1 in 10. Odds of getting cancer in your lifetime, 
One in two men, one in three women. It's up to us to change the odds for our generation, for the ones we love, for our future. If you don't like the odds, stand up. Stand up to cancer. I can solve difficult problems for a Fortune 500 company. I can run a successful business. I can manage your home improvements. I can publicize your message. I can motivate your audience. I can put my military experience to work for your company. I can teach your children. I can boost your bottom line. I can add value to your workplace. I could be a loyal and productive employee. But I can't put my skills to work for your organization if I'm not given the opportunity. If you don't recognize my talents and ability. If you don't hire me. If you don't have an open mind and a workplace that's open to everyone. If you don't realize that America works best when everybody works. What can you do? What can you do? What can you do? You can remember that it works. It's what people can do. It's what people can do that matters. Nearly 50 million Americans have disabilities. Capitalize on their talents with employment practices that benefit everyone. Learn more at whatcanyoudocampaign.org. There was a When news and headlines following an act of gun violence fade away, who's left? The families. Gun violence is real. It affects more people than you would ever imagine. Losing a family member is one of the worst things that anyone can ever go through. This is something that's often forgotten, like what happens to the people after the incident. Although our country struggles to agree on a long-term solution to gun violence, we can all agree on one thing. Any family suffering a loss as a result of gun violence needs our support. Focus needs to shift to the human being. These continue to happen, and more people have join the club that we didn't ask to be a part of. There's families that are not getting the help that they need. It seems like there's nobody really rallying around the people who have experienced the hardship that we have. So many families in need, and I can really empathize with that. They need our love, compassion, and hope. Life for these families may not get any easier. Their lives are never going to be the same. Ever. But with the support of others, they will get stronger. We can help. The Christina Grimmie Foundation, building a legacy of hope and inspiration. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight as we uh, continue our series on FBI secrecy uh, and our attempt, really, to inform the American people uh, of what actually is going on in some parts of the FBI. Let me be clear on this. Uh, There are good people, good things going on in the FBI. We have no doubt about that. Uh, We salute those that honor the badge in the FBI, those that have risked their lives and still do from day to day right now uh, to make a difference in our society and to protect uh, the United States and its citizens therein. We believe that, okay? Uh, But tonight we are obligated as advocates to shine the light on the other side of the FBI and certain things that have just gone on that are questionable uh, and conduct that is unbecoming as an FBI agent. Uh, regardless of what you may feel or think 
there are things that happen in, in every organization where you have people that simply will not do it the right way. We focus on that tonight regarding the IRP5 case, uh, but also in regards to questions that have been raised on Capitol Hill. Uh, Congressman Gomert uh, came out last year talking a lot about some questionable behavior of, of FBI Director Mueller. Uh, he actually was the director uh, of the FBI at the time of the IRP uh, solutions case. And as we talked prior to the break, uh, just actions that ignored uh, letters and things that pointed to there was an issue uh, with certain actions that had happened, and it was ignored by this director. Uh, Congressman Gomer came out. He wrote a book, uh, continues uh, to press. His book is called Mueller Unmasked. Uh, he steps out to say, look, there are some questions here, and it's our job to raise those questions. So please understand our position on that. Right now, let's hear a little bit about uh, Mueller Unmasked and what that's all about. And as the Mueller investigation continues, one member of Congress has done his own investigation, a former FBI director, Robert Mueller, and has published his findings in a new report. One America's John Hines is more from Washington. A Texas GOP congressman says he's had enough of what he calls special counsel Robert Mueller's abuse of power, and that he is acting now with a 48-page report to unmask Mueller's questionable history and what he calls total lack of judgment spanning decades. But Ted Stevens, my gosh. He, Senator Ted Stevens of Alaska. Senator Ted Stevens. And for whatever reason, Mueller, as FBI director, has his agents um, go after him. And it appeared clear after his conviction and after he lost his close race that the whole case was manufactured. He was charged with accepting uh, fixes and, and additions to his... Uh, Alaska cabin. Well, and it, after it all said and done, it turns out he had overpaid for the additions. But a witness who could have proven this, including an FBI agent, were ignored, says Texas GOP Congressman Louis Gohmert in a section of his report that he calls Robert Mueller unmasked. They'd sent one witness home that could have verified that he overpaid. They uh, manufactured evidence. They hid exculpatory evidence. And this was not the only instance where a Mueller investigation hid exculpatory evidence, says Gomert, a former Texas appeals court chief justice. Another case involved organized crime figure Waddy Bulger when Mueller was serving as U.S. attorney in Boston. And Bulger was assisting the FBI investigating other organized crime figures. And there were some people, some FBI agents that were in cahoots with Waddy Bulger. And uh, we don't know for sure whether Mueller knew that they were intentionally framing uh, four competitors of Whitey Bulger, helping knock out his competition. Uh, but uh, we do know that after it should have been clear to everybody that these guys got framed, Mueller was still writing letter to the parole board saying, don't let these guys out. No one did let them out, and two of those framed eventually died in prison, says Gomert. These and other incidents as documented in Gomert's report, Robert Mueller unmasked, build a solid case to support one decisive course of action. With respect to the person who hired Mueller, 
Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, according to Gohmert. Rosenstein needs to be fired, but there absolutely needs to be a second special counsel. I suggested to the president, you can't fire him in June of last year, you can't fire Mueller for political reasons. He really does need to be fired, but you can't do it for political reasons. But you can appoint a second special counsel to investigate Rosenstein, Mueller, Comey, Clinton, all of those folks. Copies of the report, Robert Mueller Unmasked, are available at Gohmert's official congressional website. John Hines, One America News, Washington. Well, there you have it. Uh, Congressman Gohmert making it clear uh, of the questions raised with uh, Director Mueller. Uh, It seems to be that all the concerns that we had as an advocacy organization regarding the conduct of Mueller. Uh, Congressman Gohmert points those things out. Uh, give us a little insight, William, if you will, on the, uh, on the situation. He, I, thought, I thought he mentioned in that interview, Whitney, is it Boger? Whitey, Whitey Boger. Whitey Boger. Um, give us a little insight on that. That was a bit, pretty big deal. Uh, we're going to get a bit more to the Gohmert interview here uh, in a moment, but give us some insight. What we had talked about prior to the show, we discussed a little bit of this of what happened. Right. So, so you know, the the situation with Whitey Bulger was the fact that um, he was actually an informant for the FBI, and okay. so um, as an informant, he was basically being ran by by agents, and he was actually turning over evidence uh, and setting up his rivals. So they basically they started that in around 1994 that he was, um, you know, basically. Uh, well, excuse, excuse me, actually back before that, actually in 1975. So he was basically a, a um, you know, a mob boss. Right. And basically, uh, you know, was running his gang and basically turning on, you know, giving up evidence on his on his rivals. And so the FBI was, was you know, had charges against and they were basically going after these guys. Then what happened? They turned on him. They turned on Whitey Bulger. The FBI. The FBI did. Okay. And so... The case actually unfolded where his handler, uh, Special Agent John Conley, I believe, was actually convicted of racketeering, and then they subsequently found Whitey Bulger because right. uh, he helped him get away. Right. And so now the FBI now it has it tur- turned on their informant. They actually charged him with 19 counts of murder and also racketeering. Let me let me be clear. How does the FBI bring you in? See, this is what we're talking about, and the secrecy that's involved with this. You bring Waddy Bulger in as an informant for the, for the FBI. So there, I'm, I guarantee you there are promises made here. Right. You're going to work for us. You'll be an informant for us. We're not going to – in most cases, if you're an informant, you don't suffer any loss. There's some type of deal made to say, uh, look, we're going to work with you and do something for you, but this is where – the questions of those in the FBI that choose to abuse power. That's right. Where does that trail lead to? It goes back again to the IRP-6 case. Because exactly. now you have FBI agents obstructing justice, obstructing subpoenas to be served on their fellow brethren. Yes, yes. This yes. is a pattern here that you it, see. It is, it and is. It doesn't seem to matter who is the director. It's a culture now. Right. What is the culture of the FBI? Again, let me be clear. This isn't all FBI agents. 
There are people that have no idea this is going on who get up every morning and honor the badge of the FBI. Right. We got that. And that's and that was the thing about the the clip with uh, with the congressman there. He was talking about this behavior. Yes. And he was talking about how now the FBI was actually operating in the same uh, with the same agenda almost as as the mob as an organized crime unit. They're actually making these deals. And and so in the case of Whitey Bulger, they were they were making these deals. They said, listen, we will not touch you. We know that you are the leader of this gang. We will not touch you, any of your gang in exchange for information that can help us put your rivals away. Well, here's now, what, that's a stake there. That's, that's the thing. I, I, I saw this. So you're basically enabling another organization, organized a, a, a crime. crime, yes, organization, to take over turf and continue to operate while you take out their competitor. Wow, and then ultimately you turn on your informant. Yes, you turn and on and you bring him up on nineteen. You you know what this man was about before you made him an informant, right? And then his handler, a, a special agent, helps him escape and evade the FBI. And so now that's why Whitey Bulger they found him in Santa Monica. You know right, he he'd, he'd right. been he'd been living living a good life for years. Mm-hmm. So. They had him on 19 counts of murder, federal racketeering, and corruption. This is their informant. This, this is, is their, their informant. This is their guy. This is their guy and their special agent as well. So had been charged. What, so here's what I don't understand. Somebody help me here. It sounds like the same action, the raid of RP Solutions, unwarranted. Yes. The FBI goes in here as. Listen to me very carefully. Organized crime many times don't display the agents and loaded uh, uh, agents that were armed that stepped into RP Solutions that day. Uh, a very small Afri- uh, minority, majority, minority ran business. Yes, yeah. And how many agents were there that 21, day? 21, I believe that's correct. 21 armed FBI agents. So more agents wow. than employees. At the company. So you have 21 armed agents going into a building. No mob. This is not the mob. This is not a warehouse in, in East, East New Jersey that you happen to go into with 24 agents. This is, this is a raid. This, this is a raid in Colorado Springs. Of a corporate office. Of IT professionals. Yes. I mean, this is not like a, a, a raid of a, of a home or something like that. This is... I mean, this was a raid of an office building. And you walked into this place, and my understanding of that raid, very unprofessional, uh, very rude, very intimidating, at least the attempt to intimidate, and even put people in a holding room. They created the, the break room into a holding cell. Is that correct? And not just people. They put all the black employees in that room. In a holding cell, it basically was in the break room, and they instructed. but they were locked in there, right? Yeah, we were. We were. There were. There was two armed FBI agents standing guard in the room with all of us. We weren't allowed to leave, and they were armed. They were armed. We had to ask to go to the bathroom. Now, all all along, uh, the there there was one white executive, David Chipolo, mm-hmm. that was allowed to freely roam the building. They never questioned, talked to him. Asked him what he was doing, anything, but all the uh, black employees were 
sequestered in that uh, break room. Okay, so let me be clear. We have 21 armed agents. None of the people in the building were armed. Is that correct? No, no. Correct. No one was armed. Why do I have? Why am? Why then? Do we have 21 armed agents and two of them guarding the break room as if they're in a federal prison? Can somebody help me with that? Well, Mont, like you said, I mean, it's the, it's them using that mob mentality, you know, like you, they tried to intimidate it. Grant, granted, it didn't work. They didn't succeed in intimidating anyone. But the fact of the matter is, is that, I mean, that they were after something. They were using this cloak. If we want to, you know, look at your financial records or whatever else like that, because ultimately, I mean, we know what they were doing. They were there trying to steal something, that, you know, steal some software they didn't want to pay for. And they were trying to use fear and intimidation and bullying to get what they wanted. This is something that's really alarming, folks. We got to pay attention to this. Uh, this was the beginning of the injustice of the RP5 case. This was the beginning of it. Uh, and then further down the road, as we talked earlier, we have obstruction by another FBI agent obstructing the serving of a subpoena by the court. Right. This is a pattern, and this is what Congressman Gomer is talking about. He's talking about a pattern of behavior. What is this? He mentioned Ted Stevens in this case. Uh, A huge injustice to Senator Stevens. Huge injustice. But if you look at the paper and if you look at the statistics on paper and why they did what they did to Senator Stevens, it had no merit. It had no finding. And this man, they destroyed him. Right. Based upon what Congressman Gomer speaks to, and we're going to get to that on the other side of the break. The setup here, the calculated steps taken, this is why a just cause must make this very informative to the American people. We're not here to attack the entirety of the FBI, but what is going on that causes a Republican congressman to say, I must speak out about the pattern? Of behavior of the FBI. I'm going to say something, and and you may or may not agree with this. This injustice that took place with the IRP-5, without question, every possible person involved, whether it be the FBI, which it is, the IRS, which it is, the U.S. Attorney's Office, which it is, are culpable in the death of an innocent person, LaWanna Banks Clark. And don't forget the judge. And this judge. Absolutely. The question is, as advocates, do we remain silent or do we inform the American people? If it happened here, it can happen there. Absolutely. And let me say it again. This isn't everybody, but this select few that did what they did in this case. And what Congressman Gomart speaks to sounds very familiar. Not worrying about if people are innocent or not, we have a hidden agenda. And we'll carry that agenda out. We talked before um, about people that were investigated by the FBI that ultimately ended up, and under the, Mueller, under the guise of Mueller's leadership, the director, were committed suicide. 
They were approached by, by the FBI and told they had this, they had that. These people said, I, I can't deal with it. It's the, it's the power of the office, of the agency, that causes people to fa- fall back and say, oh, my God, the FBI, you have rights. You must know your rights, and you must not let anyone, including uh, the FBI, to step on that. This is AJC Radio. Tonight we continue our series, FBI Secrecy, the start of corruption exposed. Part two continues on the other side of the break. This is AJC Radio. Here are 50 white guys. Here are 50 black guys. Here's how many white guys can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. The chances amount to one out of 17. Now here's how many black guys can expect the same thing. The chances are one out of three. Why? Lots of reasons. It's complicated. But one thing is clear. There's racial bias at every level of the criminal justice system. When blacks and whites commit the same kind of crimes, blacks are more likely to be arrested. Once arrested, they're more likely to be convicted. Once convicted, they're more likely to serve in longer sentences. Look at the numbers in America's so-called war on drugs. About 14% of American drug users are black, as are about a quarter of drug sellers. Yet blacks are 34% of the people arrested for drug crimes. And those convicted of drug crimes, 46% are black. By the time we factor in sentencing, there are actually more black drug offenders than white ones in state prisons and in federal prisons. In the end, the incarceration rate for drug crimes is 10 times higher for blacks than it is for whites. These are the facts. Racial disparity in America's war on drugs is one big reason that one out of three black men can expect to go to prison in their lifetime. Mass incarceration means that we've got a very high rate of incarceration historically, comparatively. And the other thing is the rate of incarceration is so high, so socially concentrated, we're no longer incarcerating the individual, but we're incarcerating whole social groups. The rate of incarceration now is about five times higher than it was historically. Historically, it was 100 per 100,000. Now it's about 500 per 100,000. If we look at prison, if we add jail to that, it's about 700 per 100,000. Nowhere in the world incarcerates as much as we do. We've seen extremely high rates of exposure to the criminal justice system for African-American men with very low levels of schooling. So if we think about black men who were born in the late 1970s and who were growing up through the American prison boom of the 1980s and the 1990s, the chances that they're going to serve time in state or federal prison if they dropped out of high school is about 70%. So going to prison for that group of black men with very low levels of schooling, that's become a normal life event. That's really only happened in the last 10 years. We're at this point now where there's about 1.2 million African-American children with a parent who's incarcerated. That's about one in nine. The research shows the kids who experience parental incarceration have diminished school achievement, they have behavioral problems, depressive symptoms, acting out. And there's also evidence that these kinds of negative effects associated with parental incarceration are concentrated more among boys than among girls. And there's a very real risk here that 
incarceration becomes an inherited trait, the underlying issue is we've chosen prison as a way to respond to that problem of crime. And there are a whole variety of ways that we could have chosen to respond to that problem of crime. We've chosen the response of the deprivation of liberty. And we've chosen the response of the deprivation of liberty for a historically aggrieved group whose liberty in the United States was never firmly established to begin with. Ladies and gentlemen, can I ask you a question? Did you know that there are over 2.4 million people behind bars in the United States? I'll ask you one more question. Were you aware that that is the highest number of people behind bars in the entire world? The United States makes up of only 5% of the world's population but we have over 25% of the world's prison population. America prides itself on being the most advanced and progressive nation on earth. However, sadly, we are also the world's most archaic. I'm gonna give you a personal invitation to get involved with the fight against mass incarceration. Take a few moments to call one 855-529-4252 that is a just cause and we fight for justice again call a just cause today don't delay call 1-855-529-4252 it is time and I say high time that we take America's incarceration seriously won't you join us? Call today. Sergeant Michelle Garcia served meritoriously in Iraq and has the medals to prove it. Soon after leaving the Navy, Lieutenant Chris Scott found a job, a home, and started a family of his own. Corpsman Richard Stokely took the skills he learned in Vietnam and put them to good use as a paramedic. But soon after leaving the military, each of these veterans fell on hard times and faced homelessness. Even after Michelle lost all her savings, even after Chris wasn't able to pay his mortgage, and even after Richard battled alcoholism for years, they each reached out for help when they needed it most. A simple phone call put them in touch with a trained professional from the Department of Veterans Affairs. That call got Michelle a place to stay until she could afford one of her own, put Chris in touch with employment assistance, and found Richard a substance abuse program. These veterans are success stories not only for how they were able to help others while serving their country, but for how they were able to let others help them. If you know of or are a veteran in need, make the call. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio, as tonight we have been in some very serious dialogue tonight, and I, I am confident that the American people listening to this show is seeing very clearly what, why we are doing what we are doing tonight. 
uh, as we began to kind of unravel or unmask, no pun intended, uh, the FBI from some actions, and, and as William alluded to, really cultural behavior. Uh, the Congressman Gomert also kind of digs into that of the pattern of behavior by some uh, who are employed by the FBI. And uh, unfortunately, uh, it is giving the impression this comes from the top. Uh, we talk about director, uh, former FBI Director Mueller, uh, who Congressman Gomert actually is addressing. Uh, and then we go to the RP Solutions case, the actions that took place, the raid, 21 armed agents going into the business of RP Solutions, uh, really uh, not telling the truth of why they were there, stated that they were there to look at financial records. They bypassed the financial records, ultimately moving in to really acts and conduct uh, that are highly questionable. Uh, I'll make this disclaimer again. I made it at the beginning of the show uh, that our position is not that everyone in the FBI is following this pattern of abuse. Uh, we are very appreciative of the FBI leaders and those out there who honor the badge and the oath in which they took uh, to uphold the law and the security of the United States of America. Make no mistake about it. Uh, it is our job as advocates, however, uh, where we find injustice or we find things that are unseemly, uh, we have to address those issues as well as the good. Tonight and on this series, we address the negative part and the negative things that are happening. Right now, we're going to go into the interviews, uh, multiple interviews with Congressman Gomer on Mueller, uh, what his position is and his book that he wrote, Mueller Unmasked. The reason it is critically important to this show is because uh, uh, former Director Mueller was the acting FBI director at the time that this injustice was done and began on the IRP-5, uh, IRP Solutions case, uh, those no, and the men known as the IRP-5. So that is why we are referencing this interview. Please understand that. We're going to speak more to it. Let's go to that interview right now. This particular topic is going to be dealing with some of the introductory things to Robert Mueller and some of the things that Louis Gomer has witnessed over the years. You know, he's been in Congress for a while, and so he's got some experience behind him. He's watched a lot of things happen. And so, you know, it's just a great document. So here we go. Okay, hang with me. We're going to do the first few pages on this one. So Robert Mueller unmasked, that's what he calls it. Robert Mueller has a long and sordid history of illicitly targeting innocent people that is a stain upon the legacy of American jurisprudence. He lacks the judgment and credibility to lead the prosecution of anyone. Now remember, this was written by him back in April of 2018. But keep in mind everything you know now about Robert Mueller because I think it's even more eye-opening now that we know so much. So let's go on. I do not make these statements lightly. Each time I prepared to question Mueller during congressional hearings, the more concerned I became about his work ethic. Then, as I went back to begin compiling all that information in order to recount personal interactions with Mueller, the more clearly the big picture began to come into focus. At one point, I had to make the decision to stop adding to this or it would turn into a far too lengthy project. 
What does former Attorney General Eric Holder say? Sounds like much the same thing I just said. Holder's, and this is a quote from Holder. I've known Bob Mueller for 20, 30 years. My guess is he's just trying to make the case as good as he possibly can. <laughs> Holder does know him. He has seen Mueller at work when Holder was obstructing justice and acting in contempt of Congress. He knows Mueller's FBI framed innocent people and had no remorse in doing so. Let's look at what we know. In his early years as FBI director, most Republican members of Congress gave Mueller a pass in oversight hearings, allowing him to avoid tough questions. After all, we were continually told Bush appointed him. I gave him easy questions the first time I questioned him in 2005 out of deference to his Vietnam service. Yet the longer I was in Congress, the more conspicuous the problems became. As I have said before of another Vietnam veteran, just because someone deserves our respect for service or our sympathy for things that happened to them in the military, that does not give them the right to harm our country later. As glaring problems came to light, I toughened up my questions in the oversight hearings. But first, let's cover a little of Mueller's history. Mueller's minions help mobster Whitey Bulger eliminate mob competitors. The Boston Globe noted Robert Mueller's connections with the Whitey Bulger case in an article entitled One Lingering Question for FBI Director Robert Mueller. The Globe said this, and I really like the way he put those down there. If you get the PDF, you can click on that link and it will take you to the article. Okay. Mike Albano, former parole board member who was threatened by two FBI agents for considering parole for the men imprisoned for a crime they did not commit, was appalled that later that same year, Mueller was appointed FBI director because it was Mueller first as an assistant U.S. attorney, then as the acting U.S. attorney in Boston, who wrote letters to the parole and pardons board throughout the 1980s opposing clemency for the four men framed by FBI lies. Of course, Mueller was also in that position while Whitey Bulger was helping the FBI cart off his criminal competitors even as he buried bodies in shallow graves along the Neponset. Mueller was the head of the criminal division as assistant U.S. attorney, then as acting U.S. attorney. I could not find any explanation online by Mueller as to why he insisted on keeping the defendants in prison that FBI agents in the pocket of Whitey Bulger had framed for a murder they did not commit. Make no mistake, these were not honorable people he had incarcerated. But it was part of a pattern that eventually became quite clear that Mueller was more concerned with convicting and putting people in jail he disliked, even if they were innocent of the charges, than he was with ferreting out the truth. I found no explanation as to why he did not bear any responsibility for the $100 million paid to the defendants who were framed by the FBI agents under his control. The Boston Globe said, thanks to the FBI's corruption, taxpayers got stuck with the $100 million bill for compensating the framed men, two of whom, Greco and Tomelio, died in prison. The New York Times explained the relationship this way. In the 1980s, while FBI agent Mr. McConnelly was working with Whitey Bulger, Mr. Mueller was assistant United States attorney in Boston in charge of the criminal division and for a period was the acting United States attorney there, presiding over Mr. McConnelly and Mr. Bulger as a top echelon informant. 
Officials of the Massachusetts State Police and the Boston Police Department had long wondered why their investigations of Mr. Bolger were always compromised before they could gather evidence against him, and they suspected that the FBI was protecting him. If Mr. Mueller had no knowledge that the FBI agents he used were engaged in criminal activity, then he certainly was so incredibly blind that he should never be allowed back into any type of criminal case supervision. He certainly helped continue to contribute to the damages of the framed individuals by working so hard to prevent them from being paroled out of prison, even as their charges were on their way to being completely thrown out. Notice also evidence of a pattern throughout this article, the leaking of information to disparage Mueller's targets. In the Whitey Bulger case, the leaks were to organized crime, the mob. One of the basic tenets of our democratic republic is that we never imprison people for being bad people. Anyone imprisoned has to have committed a specific crime for which they are guilty. Not in Mueller's world. He has the reverse list of Santa Claus, and if you are on his list, you get punished, even if you are framed. He never apologizes when the truth is learned, no matter how wrong or potentially criminal or malicious the prosecution was. In his book, you deserve what you get, even if you did not commit the crime for which he helped put you away. Congressman Kurt Weldon defeated by Mueller's FBI. During my first term in Congress, 2005 to 2006, Congressman Kurt Weldon delivered some powerful and relentless allegations about the FBI having prior knowledge that 9-11 was coming. He alleged loudly and vociferously that there was documentary evidence to show that 9-11 could have been prevented and thousands of lives saved if the FBI had done their job. My recollection is that he may have even accused them of intentionally turning their heads. He held up documents at times while making these claims in speeches on the floor of the House of Representatives. I was surprised that FBI Director Mueller seemed to take those allegations without the major response that appeared to be appropriate, at least to me. It seemed he should either admit the FBI made significant mistakes or refute the allegations. Little did I know Mueller's FBI was preparing a response, but it certainly was not the kind of response that I would have expected if an honorable man had been running that once hallowed institution. And there's Kurt Weldon, which we're going to talk about in a minute. <laughs> you can read two of Congressman Weldon's speeches on the House floor that are linked below. After reading the excerpts I have provided, you may get a window into the mind of the FBI director or someone under Mueller's control at the FBI. The FBI literally destroyed Congressman Weldon's public service life, which foreclosed his ability to use a national platform to expose what he believed were major problems in the FBI fostered under the Clinton administration. Here is but one such excerpt of a speech wherein he spoke of the failure of the FBI leadership. Then under the direction of the Clinton administration as it ultimately came within Mueller's control right before 9-11. They failed to even accept from the military any information on the very terrorists who would later go on to commit the atrocities of 9-11, much less act on it. They gleaned this information through development of a surveillance technology in a project called Able Danger. Okay, and I'm going to play this for you. I found the clip, so here it goes. Mr. Speaker, 
Back in 1999, when I was chair of the Defense Research Subcommittee, the Army was doing cutting-edge work on a new type of technology to allow us to understand and predict emerging transnational terrorist threats. That technology was being done at several locations, but was being led by our Special Forces Command. The work that they were doing was unprecedented. And because of what I saw there, I supported the development of a national capability of a collaborative center that the CIA would just not accept. In fact, on November the 4th of 1999, two years before 9-11, in a meeting in my office with the Deputy Secretary of Defense, the Deputy Director of the CIA, Deputy Director of the FBI, we presented a nine-page proposal to create a national collaborative center. When we finished the brief, the CIA said we didn't need that capability. And so before 9-11, we didn't have it. When President Bush came in after a year of research, he announced the formation of the Terrorism Threat Integration Center, exactly what I had proposed in 99. Today it is known as the NCTC, the National Counterterrorism Center. But Mr. Speaker, what troubles me is not the fact that we didn't take those steps. What troubles me is that I now have learned in the last four months that one of the tasks that was being done in 1999 and 2000 was a top secret program organized at the request of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, carried out by the general in charge of our Special Forces Command. A very elite unit focusing on information regarding Al-Qaeda. It was a military planning effort to allow us to identify the key cells of Al-Qaeda around the world and to give the military the capability to plan actions against those cells so they could not attack us as they did in 1993 at the Trade Center, at the Kobar Towers, with the USS Cole attack and the African Embassy bombings. What I did not know, Mr. Speaker, up until June of this year, was that that secret program called Able Danger actually identified the Brooklyn cell of Al-Qaeda in January and February of 2000, over one year before 9-11 ever happened. In addition, I learned that not only did we identify the Brooklyn cell of Al-Qaeda, but we identified Muhammad Atta as one of the members of that Brooklyn cell, along with three other terrorists who committed the leadership of the 9-11 attack. I've also learned, Mr. Speaker, that in September of 2000, again over one year before 9-11, that Able Danger team attempted on three separate occasions to provide information to the FBI about the Brooklyn cell of Al-Qaeda. And on three separate occasions, they were denied by lawyers in the previous administration to transfer that information. Mr. Speaker, this past Sunday, on Meet the Press, Louis Free, FBI director at the time, was interviewed by Tim Russert. The first question to Louis Free was in regard to the FBI's ability to ferret out the terrorists. Louis Free's response, which can be obtained by anyone in this country as a part of the official record, was, well, Tim, we're now finding out 
that a top secret program of the military called Able Danger actually identified the Brooklyn cell of Al-Qaeda and Muhammad Atta over a year before 9-11. And what Louis Free said, Mr. Speaker, is that that kind of actionable data could have allowed us to prevent the hijackings that occurred on September the 11th. So now we know, Mr. Speaker, that military intelligence officers working in a program authorized by the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the General in Charge of Special Forces Command, identified Muhammad Atta and three terrorists a year before 9-11, tried to transfer that information to the FBI, were denied, and the FBI director has now said publicly, if he'd have had that information, the FBI could have used it to perhaps prevent the hijackings that struck the World Trade Center, the Pentagon, and the plane that landed in Pennsylvania, and perhaps saved 3,000 lives, and changed the course of world history. Now, he only gave the link to the PDF that has the congressional report, so you'll have to read through that. Kurt Weldon gave speech after speech, recounting what he saw and what he knew, recounting the FBI and the Clinton administration failures in for in information sharing that led to 9-11. Congressman Weldon tried to hold those accountable in the FBI and CIA that he felt mishandled actionable intelligence, which he said could have thwarted the 9-11 terrorists if only top officials at the FBI and others had allowed our rank-and-file law enforcement and military to engage in such a battle. He recounted many examples of how they failed to do so. Understand, I am not a 9-11 denier, nor a big conspiracy advocate. I am simply relaying things for which Congressman Weldon lambasted people at the top of the FBI and other places. In 2006, the Robert Mueller-led FBI took horrendously unjust actions to derail Kurt Weldon's re-election bid just weeks before the vote, actions that were later described as a hit job in this WND article. Each of Weldon's 10 previous re-elections had been by sizable margins. Polls showed that he was up by 5 to 7 points in the fall of 2006. Three weeks prior to the election, however, a national story ran about Weldon based upon anonymous sources. Where have we heard that before? That an investigation was underway against him and his daughter, alleging illegal activities involving his congressional work. Weldon had received no prior notification of any such investigation and was dumbfounded that such a story would run, especially since he regularly briefed the FBI and intelligence agencies on his work. A week after the news story broke, alleging a need to act quickly because of the leak, FBI agents from Washington raided the home of Weldon's daughter at 7 a.m. on a Monday morning. Local TV and print media had all been alerted to the raid in advance. Have we seen this before? Oh yeah, this is starting to look very familiar. And we're already in position to cover the story. Within hours, Democratic protesters were waving caught red-handed signs outside Weldon's district office in Upper Darby. In the ensuing two weeks, local and national media ran multiple stories implying that Weldon too must have been under investigation. Given the coverage, Weldon lost the election. To this day, incredibly, no one in authority has talked to Weldon or his daughter about the raid or the investigation. There was no follow-up, no questions, no grand jury interrogation, nothing.
Well, there you have it. Uh, as, as this young lady begins to break down the facts, William, line by line of the culture that we're talking about, which ultimately affected the IRP5 case. Right. Yeah. That is that's very very troubling. It is. It is. You see a pattern. I mean, we've had, we have we've talked about the the Whitey Bulger piece. I mean, we've had clips there. We've talked about Ted Stevens and that that clip here. Even the clip that we started out earlier, the the, the piece that you read about the fellow that had been watched by the FBI. You know, it, it, what you what we're outlining here is a pattern of behavior. Once once you're on the radar from the FBI. You don't know when that will happen or, or, or what the circumstances is around that. But basically at that point, they start to move in with some level of intimidation to try to make something happen and, and to make them look good or justify their case or justify their situation and circumstance. So it's basically you should appear on their radar. They roll in with the intimidation uh, and manipulate the case. To, to steer it into the direction that they want, and that's really what's what's happening. And I'm sure that there, if we were to do more and more research, you'd probably find thousands of cases that are like this. And again, you know, it goes back to to the point that you made coming into this show. This is not all the agents. This is not the FBI as a whole, but it is or parts of the FBI units uh, of the FBI that that manipulate. And um, do things like this. This is their code of conduct. You know, this is how they get things done. And so, it's it's really critical that you know our listeners understand this. That this is a recipe that they will follow to the T. If yep. it, you know, and that's it. That's just it. But as you see, it's a very clear picture. Uh, and this is what we want to inform the American people of. Uh, this is one of those things that you just continue. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to see the pattern, the behavior, the steps taken, and to what extent, in some cases, uh, that some of these FBI agents will go to and its leadership uh, to protect itself. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. The United States of America incarcerates more people than any other country in the world. In fact, the U.S. hosts more prison inmates than all other developed nations combined. As of 2010, the world population was over 6.8 billion people, with an estimated 9.8 million in jail. This figure, compiled by the International Center for Prison Studies, refers both to individuals held in jail awaiting trial and inmates serving time after sentencing. So there are 9.8 million human beings on planet Earth living inside of cages that we know of. In 2010, the U.S. was home to about 309 million people, 4.5% of the world's total population, but housed 23% of the world's prisoners. So take a moment to think about what this means. It means we imprison more people than enormous autocratic countries like China. We imprison more people than Russia. Compared to the size of our population, our rate of imprisonment dwarfs our closest allies, like the United Kingdom, France, and Canada. As of 2010, there were over 1.6 million post-trial inmates serving sentences in America's state and federal facilities. This number does not include those being detained pre-trial or those on probation. The most unique feature of incarceration in America is the large and active role of our federal government. In most countries, crime is reacted to at the local or regional level. 
whereas the American government finances and legislates a significant portion of law enforcement at the national level. State governments still do their fair share of incarceration, though. California and Texas incarcerate more than other states with over 171,000 inmates each. Florida is a close third with over 103,000 prisoners. But no single state locks up more people than the federal government with over 208,000 inmates. Perhaps the nickname Land of the Free, Home of the Brave, should be updated. Though I suppose you need to be brave to endure the highest likelihood of incarceration the world has ever known. Prisons are not what we think about when we think of America, and they shouldn't have to be. A free nation shouldn't imprison so many people, and a fiscally responsible nation can't afford to. With close to $40 billion a year in state correctional spending, the financial costs are obvious and staggering alone. But the human costs are often underappreciated. 1.6 million fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, sons and daughters of American families are incarcerated. It's time for people to realize that the criminal justice system in America is desperately in need of reform. She's coined a new term for the times we're living in. Brace for it, parents of America. Alternative facts. Alternative facts. What? Oh, what? Alternative facts? Lies. We fit. Also known as stereotypes or false narratives. It's like saying black history began with slavery. That's offensive. Or that we'll never see another black president in our lifetime. What about me? This Black History Month, we're focusing on the facts, not on corner facts. Indisputable truth, real. Black magic is real. Black boy joy is real. Black wealth is real. Black beauty is real. Black support is real. Black excellence is real. It's real. Black love, that's real. Black lives are real. I'm real. Black history didn't begin with slavery, and it doesn't end with the Obamas, whom we love and miss. No, like, really, we really miss you. Back. Almost every day in the news, we hear stories about innocent people who are returning home after spending years in prison for crimes they did not commit. What you may not know is that their problems don't end once the limelight fades. For many wrongfully convicted individuals don't receive a penny for the injustice that they face. Take the case of Floyd Bledsoe. He spent 16 years in the Kansas prison for a murder and rape he did not commit. And while Floyd was eventually exonerated, he lost everything his family, his farm, and decades worth of income. Unfortunately, Floyd's story is not unique. Kansas, along with 17 other states, doesn't have a law to compensate wrongfully convicted individuals for the injustices they suffered. And in states with compensation laws, many of those are woefully inadequate. We owe it to all the men and women in all 50 states to provide fair compensation to those who've suffered these injustices. Join me in urging our lawmakers to do the right thing by the wrongfully convicted. Go to innocenceproject.org to find out how you can help.
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to AJC Radio tonight as we have been really unmasking the part of the FBI and its agents, not all, but some that have chosen to tread on very, very shaky waters, if you will, when it comes to justice, uh, not only in the RP Solutions case, but a conduct of behavior, uh, William, that we have seen in this show tonight, uh, it sounds, it is eerie at best, yes. uh, the relation to the RP Solutions case, the actions, the conduct, the pattern of some in the FBI that is very troubling, as it, we have seen that tonight. It is, it is. I mean, you hear, you hear the theme, you hear the recipe for their, their moving in, intimidating, manipulating, to the point where they want you to go. They basically steered it to steer cases and situations to their to their destination. I mean, they did it with with uh, kind of as you talked about with IRP, where you talk about the manipulation. Tw- so you start out with twenty one armed FBI agents that rush into a building. That's number one. That's number one. But then how you know the company becomes of of, of interest to the FBI. Okay, that's number one. Then they rush in with the intimidation. The manipulation of the case, um, the manipulation and coordination with the prosecutors, uh, failure, the manipulation, like in the case with me, where we cannot serve uh, one of their own agents. They will not allow. So you roll up, you pull out your badge, you pull out your your gun. gun. And and now and then you tell me um, you tell me, yeah, he's not supposed to be served. If you have a smartphone, you'll be receiving notification. Notification from whom? Never heard of that. Now, I mean, you've never heard of these types of things. Notification from whom? The court is going to notify me that I cannot to your personal to, cell phone to my personal cell phone that I have a a court order subpoena that's from the judge oh, that I cannot give to the agent. Okay, so now then you come you come back to the case. And now it's the manipulation of the case, where there's evidence that's not allowed. Okay, we talked about the intellectual property that was seized and has been held. And my my understanding of that is that intellectual property cliff is still under seize. Is that correct? Yes, they're still part of that intellectual property that they have not returned. I, I do not. And this is this case has concluded with injustice without question, the right. wrongful conviction right. of these men. Uh, but again, the FBI preys upon, like most big parts of government, they prey upon the ignorance of the American people because they don't know. This is where AJS calls, AJC Radio comes in to say, look, we have to inform you. You have rights. You need to know those rights before you're in your underwear in the front of your house at 2 a.m. in the morning wondering what is going on with your dog barking at the neighbors. What's happening here? Cliff, go ahead in regards to that intellectual property. and why, why is that so important? Well, your intellectual property is what you base building out your, uh, you know, your intellectual uh, product. In this case, uh, you know, software. So that intellectual property lays out how the software is going to be built. And if a competitor gets that in their hand or someone who uh, is not actually a competitor to begin with, then with them having your intellectual property, they know what route you're taking to come up with the solution that you're coming up with. But the, the problem with this situation is 
you know, starting out with the FBI, it is it just goes up the chain with the entire uh, so-called justice system. That that at the end of the day, you have a judge and Judge Christine Arguello that will not ensure that the law is being upheld. And if the judge doesn't make the prosecutor do what's right, and the prosecutor does not hold the FBI agents, uh, you know, to to the standard that they're supposed to be held up to when they gather uh, evidence then who is who has oversight of what is going on in this situation? You have these three uh, parts of the justice system that all they're after is a conviction. So who has the interest of justice. the public? Uh, yeah, where, where is justice? And who is ensuring that it's upheld? If the judge doesn't do it, and that's whose job it is, then these type of abuses continue. And this is why it's important. Listen, I'll tell you right now, going to the polls, we said this before, in your local communities, in national elections, where you're dealing with members of Congress, you're dealing with the president of the United States, we have to make sure, and this is for future generations, we've been talking about the importance of voting way back, the importance of that. And whoever you vote for, you got to make sure who is going to uphold the standard. And if the standard is broke, we have a problem. It's true. Or the standard is moving. It's a moving, moving goal. You know what I'm saying? They, they just adjust it however they want to. And so you, it's, it's critical that we as citizens, number one, make ourselves aware of these situations. Number two, to your point, get out and vote and let our voices be heard because these things are happening. We're bringing this show to light, but you could, but you have to understand. There's, like I said, there's plenty of cases that have never been covered. There's cases that has happened in the past, um, high-profile cases like like Ted Stevens. Uh, you know, more and more, and it will continue. Well, you have the LS, LSD nine, right? Right. You got a guy that whose wife we ended up talking to on this show, a former sheriff in California, Los Angeles. Uh, they went to his house. Put a gun to him to his head. Had his wife out there with a gun pointed at her. Uh, and this is he's trying to figure out what's going on. And we talk about the secrecy. Uh, there are certain rights you have. You just can't. You know, this guy's not a mob boss. He's not. No. He's got a family. Why is his wife subjected to that type of trauma? Post-stress traumatic syndrome there. I've talked to this woman. Totally, completely out of it for what she experienced. Have we done our homework on the after of, at the, of the aftermath, if you will, of the conduct and behavior of some of these agents, of some of these in leadership positions within the Federal Bureau of Investigations? The standard has to be set higher for those that lead these agents. A lot of these agents are coming straight out of the academy. What, what standard are we setting in place? What culture are we setting in place to lead and affect the future leaders of our FBI? Because I'll tell you what, those folks that come out of the academy for the FBI, these are future leaders in some capacity within the Federal Bureau of Investigations. So it's, just, it's critical as we look, and this is why it was so important to hear from Congressman Gomer and his position 
uh, he took a position that wasn't popular. Please understand that. When Congressman Gomert came out and said, I have questions, he said he couldn't remain silent. And you heard the young lady introduce the congressman and say that Congressman Gomert said this is not something that was easily reached to do this. This was not a, a, a decision made lightly, if you will, to open up the eyes of the American people and say, look, we do have a problem within our law enforcement agencies. We would be very naive to believe that every person in every organization in the federal government is crystal clean. They're not. That, that would be naive to believe that. Right. Uh, then you start talking about, I think we talked before on this show, when we were addressing the FBI's conduct, we talked about those um, whose lives were ruined. Uh, we said earlier, Senator Ted Stevens, uh, they said they wanted him. They did so much damage to him, I believe he was not reelected or there were some issues with his reelection. Uh, they attacked him, and at, at the end of the day, when all the, the, the behavior by, by some of the FBI, they found no wrongdoing with this man. Right. He had, he had lost – I believe he had lost his, his seat. He lost the right. election, I think, and I think subsequently he passed away. He did pass before away. Before all this – you know, so he, he, was, he was found – it was exonerated, sure. but by that point, he'd already passed away, lost his seat. So the effect had already taken, taken, you know, actually the effect had already taken place. I mean, for what they had done, you know. I mean, what do you do for his family? What do you do for the, the, the collateral damage of it? This type of behavior, this type of abuse. We are saying, what about the moms, the wives, the children, the fathers, the grandparents? This is serious business. Go ahead. No, and I was thinking even to the point of, of the the LA SD nine. Sure, great, sure. I mean, this is he was he was a sheriff, right? Is correct. that correct? correct. I, okay. So even turning on their own law enforcement, turning on their own brothers and sisters in blue to get an outcome. Well, you the, know? so there's no there's no one exempt from this. That's the danger. Um, in the LS in the L, uh, LASD nine case, uh, this is what's bad. And I got to I'll reference this as we again, we'll pick this up next week. But the FBI, and we're going to deal with that story next 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 week. Please tune in to the show is that the FBI illegally went into the county, Los Angeles County Jail. OK, they went into the jail illegally, got an informant who had no credibility. And. Basically smuggled a cell phone into the facility with no word to the higher-ups of that department, of that sheriff's department. No one knew anything about it from what we understand. Uh, There's speculation that Sheriff uh, uh, Baca uh, had some knowledge. Uh, That's here or there. But when they tried to challenge and tell the FBI, look. You can't come in and do that because you put lives at risk. We don't know. So somebody with a with a with a cell phone can do a lot of dam- a lot of damage from a county jail. Do you know what they were told by the FBI? The FBI says because you have said this, now we're going to put you up on charges. We're coming after you. How do you come into my house, break the law, violate the rights of every? inmate there as well as put those at risk and in danger and because I call you about the protocol of what the FBI should follow 
you then in return thank me and have me charged with crimes. That's that's the story there. Um, that's troubling. We're going to get into that next week. I believe uh, the LASD-9 situation we're going to talk about because the FBI in that case. And again, we're talking about the pattern of behavior. Let me say the disclaimer as we go off the air tonight. It is our obligation, it is our duty as advocates to speak out and to inform the American people of what's going on in this country, regardless of what entity of government that might be. We focus on the FBI, the secrecy, the corruption, not by all, let me be clear. To those that honor the badge within the Federal Bureau of Investigations, we salute you. We thank you for your service and your sacrifice. But in this series, we deal with those that simply do not honor the oath or the badge they wear. This is AJC Radio. We pick it up again next week. Good night, America. Kobe Bryant was a teenager when he walked onto the NBA stage. And there was no doubt in his mind that he was ready. I'm going to go in there and I'm going to work hard every day. I'm young, but I'm not going to back down from anyone. He had the drive, the ability to thrill, all wrapped in a megawatt smile. Welcome to the Kobe Show. And fans began to see that they were in for something special. Here comes Bryant. Oh, pair with Shaquille O'Neal to form a powerful one-two punch, elevating his game when it counted most. Kobe, jump shot for the lead, yes! The phenom had grown into a three-time NBA champ. Three, that's three. Back, two back, two back. Kobe was anything but a finished product. In the years that followed, he reached a new level of mental and physical dominance. The Mamba was born. I couldn't even dream of this when I was a kid. You know, there's no way possible. You know, just a blessing from above. And his scoring explosions captivated the league. Four straight games, 50 or more points. All the while, Kobe realized there was still room to grow. Kobe Bryant, the 2007-2008 most valuable player. And that true greatness means lifting those around him. Go easy for us. Make him earn everything. He embraced his role as a leader, and the result was a return to glory for the Los Angeles Lakers. Basketball immortality for the 09 Los Angeles Lakers. The Lakers repeat back-to-back titles. Kobe's ability to inspire wasn't limited to his body of work in the NBA. They called me the OG. You know what I mean? So it's fun for me to be around these guys and kind of mentor them a little bit. He was a driving force behind the 2008 Olympic team that restored USA basketball to the top of the podium and won gold again in 2012. Team USA has won back-to-back gold medals. Beloved by fans around the world, Kobe Bryant had transcended the game. He embodied excellence, achievement, and aspiration for millions of fans everywhere.
And when it came time to write the final chapter of his NBA career, Kobe saved one of his most unforgettable performances for last. Kobe Bryant, on the final night of his NBA career, scores 60 points, 6-0. Man! To spend 20 years here, you can't write something better than this. With his playing days behind him, he understood that all along, his single-minded pursuit of excellence was about much more than himself. The most important thing is how your career moves and touches those around you and how it carries forward to the next generation.